Welcome to World History Class with Mr. Lutz, where today's episode will focus on Africa and especially its connections to the Atlantic world. We'll glance at different regions of Africa, seeing what's happening with them during this era, but then we'll take a particular interest in what is going on with West Africa in its role in the transatlantic slave trade. So if you're ready, then I'm ready. So for today's key concept connection section, what I plan on doing is focusing on three different aspects of Africa in the following order. We'll start off talking about African society in general, kind of as best we can, leaving the larger slave trade out of the picture, but inevitably we'll discuss it a little bit. From there, we'll turn our attention to the Atlantic slave trade itself and the particular effects it has on Africa. And finally, we'll take a look at the African diaspora, and what African culture begins to look like once it makes its way to the Americas. So, beginning with African society, when we last left off discussing Africa, we'd spent the majority of our time talking about the sub-Saharan kingdoms of Ghana, Mali, and Songhai, as well as talking about the role played by the city-states of the Swahili coast in the Indian Ocean trade network. And although there is a slave trade present in the Swahili coast or on the Swahili coast, we're really going to place our focus uh, with West Africa. So in that region, by the end of the 16th century, where we last left off, the Songhai Empire had collapsed at the hands of a Moroccan army that was equipped with muskets. And it was then replaced by primarily smaller kingdoms. And these territories continued the trend began by first Mali and later on Songhai of interacting and trading with Portuguese merchants at first. And over time, European influence is going to dramatically alter the historical trajectories of these West African kingdoms. So the courts of West Africa had left the Portuguese very impressed and were going to lead to the first missionary efforts to convert the leadership of these states to Christianity. Now, one of the most successful conversions was with the ruler of the kingdom of Congo, Nzinga Mbemba. Conversion to Christianity had appealed to Nzinga Mbemba because it helped to legitimize his rule, and it helped to cement a close commercial relationship with the Portuguese, as well as having the Portuguese, in exchange, provide the Congo with political and military support. However, as the demand for human cargo in the form of slaves grew, the Kingdom of Congo's days of success were soon to be numbered. So this slave trade was going to really expand as sugar production began to grow in the Atlantic world. And in its early stages, it was really primarily controlled by the Portuguese, and they are going to facilitate the process of acquiring and selling slaves, and in doing so, they're going to undermine kingdoms such as Congo. So in order to acquire the slaves, the Portuguese are going to secure trade relationships with kingdoms on the interior, where in exchange for manufactured goods, especially weapons, the Portuguese would receive the slaves they desired. These interior kingdoms were sometimes opposed to Congo, and the more weapons the Portuguese exchanged with these kingdoms for slaves, the more they ultimately undermine the power of Congo in the region. 
and Nzinga and Bemba would repeatedly write to the king of Portugal to make him aware of these concerns. And I know in my class in particular, we will read a plea that he had written to the king of Portugal, basically pleading for the slave trade to end. So wars are going to spring up in the region, and the Portuguese are going to come to the aid of the Congos. They will back them up. They will try to help out as best they can. But ultimately, Congo's authority declines as Portuguese interests move away from the region and onto the next kingdom called Ndongo. So Ndongo, which becomes known to the Portuguese as Angola, which is the term we're going to be more familiar with in this course, had grown in power and significance thanks to the trade relations it had established with the Portuguese over time. However, this expanding influence had come as a double-edged sword because what it really means is the region is increasingly exposed to the horrors and the issues presented to Africa by the slave trade. So yes, you maybe get enhanced power, maybe your military grows in strength, but ultimately you're exposing your region to the slave trade and potentially leaving hundreds of thousands of people throughout time, ultimately tens of millions of people exposed to this trade. So Portuguese expansion in this kingdom of Ndongo is going to be fought by their queen, Nzinga, for decades, who had led her people into battle herself, even allying with the Dutch in opposition to the efforts of the Portuguese. However, she's unable to defeat the Portuguese for good, and they're able to establish Angola with their main trading post at Luanda as their first African colony below the Sahara, and they're going to hold on to Angola until 1974. And we will be talking about imperialism in Africa in the 19th century and decolonization in the 20th century. So we will be coming back to what changes and what's going to stay the same in this region as it is just continually exposed to European exploitation throughout the centuries. Now, moving further down the coast of Africa into South Africa, uh, the Portuguese and the Dutch had forged alliances and intervened in affairs with the local peoples there for the benefit, ultimately, of their own commercial purposes. And by 1652, the Dutch had established a trading post in the place called Cape Town, which is in modern-day South Africa, of course, and it's of the same name. There, they had pushed back the Khoikhoi people increasingly from the region, and more and more Dutch settlers known as Boers, migrated into the region by the early 18th century. By 1800, there are going to be 17,000 Boers in the Cape Colony, and soon it will transfer hands into the British, and we'll talk more about the Cape Colony in our next unit here. So moving along to the East African coast, uh, it now has to contend with an increasing Ottoman and Portuguese presence but it does feature mostly continuities from the previous era. Gold is still important as a trade commodity, as is ivory, and as are slaves playing that role in commerce of this region. Most slaves who are being traded in the East African slave trade network are going to be destined to serve the harems and the homes of the Arab elite, but some are also destined to work on plantations in European island colonies in the Indian Ocean. Um, Islam is going to continue to feature prominently in the region, and it should be mentioned in the interior of West Africa as well, Islam will play a prominent role where it's going to continue to syncretize with the local indigenous traditions there. 
However, this, this syncretic tradition that we've talked about in West Africa is going to be challenged a bit by a group called the Fulani, who emerged during this time initially as a pastoral group, but they begin to settle in towns and cities, and they're spreading a more rigid form of Islam that was not as willing to merge traditional African beliefs with the faith that was originally taught by Muhammad. And the influence of groups like the Fulani are to be felt in sub-Saharan Africa for several centuries as Islam continues to grow its increasing presence in the region. So we've kind of got this overview of different parts of Africa. Um, and what we're going to do now is turn our focus to the Atlantic slave trade. So we're really going to zero our focus in on West Africa and what's going on there. But before we do that, just a couple of words about the tradition of slavery in Africa. It, you have to understand that slavery and its processes are not new to Africa upon involvement of the Europeans. There had been centuries of slavery practiced in the region, and wealth could be measured by the number of slaves one owned, and they were ultimately seen as the property of their owners, which is known as chattel slavery. Slaves are going to be used within African society, and they were going to be exported to serve in the broader Islamic world beyond Africa. But Europeans are going to start to develop an interest in obtaining slaves from Africa as early as the Portuguese in the 15th century, who had originally tried to secure a supply of human beings through stealing them and forcing them into a life of slavery until they realized the process could be made easier for them if they just purchased the people through slave traders. The earliest African slaves for Europeans were sent back originally to Europe to work in mines or as servants. But the new island colonies that are starting to form at this time also became the new home for many African slaves, where they entered a life dominated by work on sugar plantations. And by the early 16th century, African slaves were also on their way to work in sugar plantations in South America. And for the next 300 years, the transatlantic slave trade boomed and impacted the world in innumerable ways. Soon enough, the Spanish would join in on the movement of human beings against their will across the Atlantic as their native labor supplies dwindled due to smallpox epidemics wiping out their populations. So the transportation of slaves across the Atlantic made up one-third of what was known as the triangular trade. Slaves traveling from Africa to the Americas traveled along what was referred to as the Middle Passage, and upon arrival in the Americas, they'd primarily work to reap the abundant supply of raw materials there for their captors. These raw materials then traveled from the Americas into European markets, where often they were processed into manufactured goods. These manufactured goods, primarily among those cloth and especially weapons, are going to be exchanged with Africans for slaves. These slaves then made their way across the Atlantic, where they were exchanged for cash or sugar. Most of these slaves were destined for work in sugar plantations originally in Brazil and then later on the Caribbean. Now, this is due to the extraordinarily difficult labor and climate conditions coupled with the massive amount of disease that was prevalent in the region, which led to a high mortality rate among slaves, which required a steady supply of new slaves to maintain production levels. So in the south of the modern-day United States, Labor conditions, climate conditions, rates of infectious disease are at least comparative to South America and the Caribbean, slightly less harsh, and they're going to lead to the ability for slaves to be able to reproduce. 
which meant more children are thus born into a life of slavery, and this ultimately means less, less slaves need to be imported from West Africa. To keep European slave traders satisfied with an ever-ready supply of human beings to exploit for their inhumane labor practices, raiding parties are going to be launched by African groups into neighboring areas of Africa where they'd kidnap people and transport them to the coastal trading ports where they'd be turned over to live a life destined as the property of another human being. So the journey of these slaves, once they make it to the coast and make it to the Americas, along what's called the Middle Passage, can only be described as horrific. The slaves were stuffed below deck in such cramped quarters they had such little room to even move themselves if they weren't already chained. Those who got sick along the way might be thrown overboard to spare the rest of the slaves from being exposed to a disease that ultimately could cut into the profit of the slave traders. The Africans who did not want to subject themselves to such horrendous conditions often protested by refusing to eat or even rebelling against their captors if possible. When all was said and done, it's believed that approximately one quarter of all slaves who traveled along the Middle Passage did not survive the journey. In total, about 12 million people endured this journey during the times of the transatlantic slave trade. So African states who did business with European slave traders could stand to benefit from this relationship to an extent. The peoples of Dahomey and Ashanti were two of these groups that did benefit to an extent. These places were individually contributing at times up to 10,000 human beings to the slave trade annually. And in exchange for the slaves, they would receive weapons to help solidify their power in the region. Now, establishing firm trading relations with foreign merchants could be seen as a continuity in the region, considering the previous success that states such as Ghana and Mali had experienced by linking trans-Saharan traders with the gold and salt of sub-Saharan Africa. The difference this time is that the most successful peoples were those who were best at bringing their fellow man into the hands of European slave traders. So the rulers of these two states, Dahomey and Ashanti, began to style themselves in a way compared to European-style absolutists, as we have seen in the likeness of King Louis XIV or Peter the Great. And remember, the importance of a regular military armed with gunpowder weapons as providing the backbone to such strong assertions of legitimacy. So these kingdoms in Africa are doing the same types of things. Now, the impact of the slave trade is going to be felt both socially and politically. Importation of crops from the Americas, such as maize and manioc, are going to provide a more secure food source, and they're going to help to improve life expectancy and the population in an Africa that had been previously so damaged from the constant warfare and exportation of so many of its inhabitants overseas against their will to work and live. Because so many men are being shipped to America, there are going to be two women to every one man in sub-Saharan West Africa by the end of the 18th century. And so this society is going to respond by beginning to accept polygamy in which a man could take more than one wife, and women are going to begin to assume roles that had been previously reserved for the men of their society. So turning our attention for this last portion in the key concept connections now to the African diaspora, that is those Africans who have been shipped across the Middle Passage and are now forced to work in a life of slavery in the Americas. So the work that's performed by Africans in the Americas is dominated primarily by plantation labor. Cash crops such as sugar and tobacco are being grown on these massive estates, 
and they're going to require enormous amounts of slaves. As previously mentioned, the nature of the work, the tropical climate, the higher prevalence of disease led to higher casualty rates among slaves working in Brazil and the Caribbean. And it was also a slave society that was dominated by males far more than compared to the southern areas of North America. These dynamics meant that two-thirds of all slaves imported to the Americas were ultimately going to be headed for Brazil or the Caribbean, while the rest of the third are going to be destined for Central America, other parts of South America, or North America, where it's believed that about 5% ended up. So African culture here is going to take on new dimensions as it becomes geographically removed from its roots. European languages are primarily spoken by the slaves, but there are also new what are called Creole languages being spoken that combine European and African dialects together, one of them being Gullah, which was spoken in modern-day South Carolina. Religion also underwent the same type of cultural blending. Some Africans had converted to Christianity before coming to the Americas, while others converted upon arrival. They frequently are going to practice a version of Christianity that syncretized their traditional practices with Christian traditions. So voodoo in Haiti was one of these traditions that borrowed Christian aspects like meeting in churches, believing in being saved in this lifetime by God, and using Christian materials in practice. But they're also going to merge the traditions of their gods with similar Christian saints. They're going to incorporate dance and song in their worship, and they're going to bring in practices of witchcraft and sorcery into their religious rituals and habits. Uh, In in another aspect, even in terms of food, uh, we're talking things like okra and rice being introduced to the southern parts of North America and are going to ultimately lead, praise the heavens, to the development of gumbo in America. And if you have not been to Louisiana, get there at some point in your life and eat all of that food. And so think about it, from the horrors of slavery emerge some of the most important types of food and, and music and cultural features in our society today that, for some of us at least, have no idea are rooted in, in such horrific experiences for so many people who had to experience them throughout history. So I wanted to take the zooming in feature for this episode to focus upon the agency of the African slaves in this chapter. So much of this episode so far has been devoted to viewing these individuals as victims. And of course they were. But what can be problematic about an approach such as this is that we deny them their proper role during this era or or their, their fair role during this era. And just as their indigenous American counterparts during this time period History didn't just happen to them. The African slaves shaped it as well, oftentimes through rebellion and non-cooperation. This could mean, of course, a full-scale revolt or something as simple as singing a song. Resistance for Africans could take very different forms, so let's take some time to examine these different patterns. Slaves are actively resisting slavery while working on plantations without taking up weapons against their captors at times. They could do this by working at a very slow pace. They could be destroying farm equipment. They could be running away. Communities of runaways had begun to form throughout the Americas, and these are going to be known as maroon communities. 
And these maroon communities are going to be able to remain self-sufficient and equip themselves with weapons to protect their freedom. And these communities will go on to last for centuries, and some present-day areas can trace their history back to their days as an original maroon community. Now, of course, slaves also do revolt at times against their captors. Revolts could happen on ships throughout this time period and could result in Africans resettling themselves somewhere on the West African coast, as was the case with the slave ship Claire in 1729. Or the rebellion could bring down slaves and crew alike by resulting in the sinking of a ship, like the case in Newport, Rhode Island in 1785. And by the way, thanks to the website slaveryandremembrance.org for this information that I had never really been aware of before. Um, and, and finally, maybe the most famous case of slave resistance on a ship, which was the case of the Amistad, where slaves from Sierra Leone killed some of their captors and ordered the ship to turn back to Africa, but not before it was captured by the U.S. Navy. And it eventually resulted in a court trial that declared the slaves who were on board the ship and who had rebelled against their captors to be freed and returned back to Africa. Uh, most successfully, though, in terms of rebellion, the slaves of the French colony of Saint-Domingue revolted and went on to establish the nation of Haiti, but this is going to be something that we study in our next unit. Finally, in terms of resistance, uh, the topic of music. Even music could be considered a form of resistance. What music is going to do at its simplest level for African slaves is it's going to help keep them rooted to the traditions of their respective cultures. And in doing so, it's going to at some part, soften the unimaginable trauma that is caused by the experiences of slavery. Slave owners often feared the power that music had in potentially undermining their authority and causing contempt amongst the slaves, and so these slave owners would make efforts to ban the music. But ultimately, this music is going to go on to influence the style of blues and jazz in America and contribute significantly to our own cultural foundations. And I really think that that's important to understand is that, you know, the legacy of slavery lives on in our society in so many visible and invisible ways. And I think its cultural legacy is perhaps one of the most fascinating for me, speaking in terms of music and of food and things like that. So today's explainer, I want to talk about the tricky thing about AP world history and the way it's created. We base it off of time periods, which of course makes sense in a lot of ways. And so far in this year, prior to period four at least, I don't think it's been too problematic. However, if you've noticed with the chapters you're reading lately, we're starting to see issues with what's called the periodization of this unit which means, if you remember, the categorizing of history into chunks of time in order to help us see distinguishing patterns within and throughout the different quote-unquote eras. So the periodization of Unit 4 as 1450 to 1750 is problematic for a chapter on Africa and the Atlantic world because slavery doesn't end in the Americas until the 19th century. So when you hit the end of, chapter, of the chapter, it starts to break up into all these different dates of when slavery ended where. And you inevitably are going to wonder 
if you need to know this for your current unit because it technically ends at 1750. And my thoughts on this are as follows. Yes, it's important for you to see how this class has been divided and recognize that changes are occurring throughout the world in the 18th century. And, and 1750, though, is not a year of particular importance in our class, so it doesn't deserve special attention as a quote-unquote cutoff date. You need to understand that there's a really big graying of the lines here between periods four and five. And if you think about it, we've already seen it when talking about the Enlightenment, uh, the Bourbon reforms in Latin America, and now we see it with the abolition of slavery. And these developments don't conform to the way our world history class has been divided, and they can lead to some pretty good debates about why decisions are made to divide the curriculum where it was divided. Your book, for instance, sets up the current unit we're studying is 1450 to 1750, but Traditions and Encounters, the other book that we've been talking about a bit, focuses on 1500 to 1800. And it may seem trivial, but it's important to consider why choices like these are made because they ultimately shape the way we learn and they can reveal the biases we have when looking at history. One way this, I think, impacts the way that we learn is that I know for a fact I have a hard time teaching about the Ming Dynasty of China in this course because they get split right in half by periods three and four. And so we talk about them at one point in the year and really don't get back to them again until weeks and weeks later on. And it's kind of hard to catch up there because you're, you're trying so much to go ahead in time and talk about the Qing Dynasty that ends up following it. So periodization, it's kind of an interesting thing at times, especially when you get around controversial decisions. And I, I think that there is a little bit of controversy in that decision to cut off this current unit at 1750. Finally, my recommendation for today. Uh, with period four, I, at least in my mind, have been making a slightly more deliberate effort to try and ensure that my narrative on this podcast doesn't focus solely on Europeans as the actors in the historical drama that is this time period. It's a potential trap that you can fall into at this time, and it is an easy one at that. Uh, and it's one that I admittedly had fallen into in years past, but one resource that has been increasingly beneficial in my ability to quote-unquote decenter history away from Europeans has been the Twitter account at Paperless History which is run by Bram Hubble, who's also a teacher of AP World History. The account now features maps, secondary sources, primary documents, including images, all meant to help us as teachers and students think of world history on a larger and more interconnected scale. It's so important to think of people all around the world during this time as both those who experienced historical processes and developments, just like the victims of the slave trade during this time, but also as the people who shaped the historical processes and developments as well, such as the agents of resistance against the injustices of the slave trade. And I'm going to keep bringing up the historical agency of all peoples during this time because it's way too simplistic to think of history as something one group just does to another. So keep fighting that good fight, and I'll catch you guys soon. Take care, everyone.